0: Thank you, Marilyn, for reading for us. I uh, am enjoying the song Almost Home. Uh, we almost have it memorized. I think we will uh, do it again uh, in a third week next week to ensure we uh, get it deeper into our bones and let it become a favorite as we work through these chapters in the book of Revelation been reading through a book again with Scott Wheeler recently called Desiring God we came upon this sentence last week in our discussion that caused us to pause and reflect describing Paul he says Paul never dabbles in the unessential he lives on the brink of eternity that's why He sees things so clearly. Such a helpful sentence. Paul, biblical apostle, never dabbles in the unessential. He lives on the brink of eternity. That's why he sees things so clearly. My hope for you today and for us is that we would look into heaven That we would think that we would leave here living, breathing, enjoying the brink of eternity. That we might see ourselves, the world, God, clearly and live accordingly. Heaven clarifies things for us. Here on earth, our priorities, our thinking, our, our doings. So this is how I want to go about it today. Why does heaven matter to us? I'm going to do a sermon backwards. I'm going to give you five, I ap- heard, heard that, thank you, five applications up front. Five ways heaven clears up living on earth. And then the second half of the sermon, we're just going to look at heaven. We're just going to look at Revelation 21, 4 through 27. Five ways heaven clears up living on earth, then look at heaven. Number one, trusting Christ on earth is the only way to inherit heaven. Trusting Christ on earth is the only way to inherit heaven. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Later on in the same chapter, he says, Paul, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The only way to obtain heaven is in Christ. Spiritual blessings and the heavenly inheritance itself. No one has heaven who does not first have Christ. No one has heaven In the afterlife, in heaven, who it is not in this life and on earth, have Christ. Unless you trust in Christ, the Son of the living God, there is no heaven for you. The only heaven there is, is Christ's heaven. And Jesus Christ is at the center of it. All the spiritual blessings and the heavenly places, they come to us. How? How do they come to us? Not by going to a new place, but through Jesus Christ spiritually to us in Christ. From where do we obtain an inheritance? Heaven itself, in Him. In Christ we obtain, we we become children of God and therefore have an inheritance from God our Father. Do not be fooled into thinking that all go to heaven. The only way to be with God again, without being judged according to our sins in His presence, is by your faith that Christ is. Has died for your sins on earth, and that he has risen from the grave. There is no such thing as heaven without Christ. All things are made by, through, and for him things in heaven and things on earth, Paul says. There's no way to heaven but through Christ. Jesus said, He is the way to the Father. And in heaven, all worship is to Jesus. There's no temple for worship. There's just God and there's just Christ worshiped in heaven. If you go back to chapters 5, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, see John's first vision of heaven. What do you see there? Chapter 4 is about God on his throne. Chapter 5 then is about Christ, the slain lamb next to God around the throne. And we see that everyone around the throne, everyone in heaven is singing, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Chapter 22, what we see today, there's no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Christ is the center of heaven's existence and purpose and worship. Why is Jesus seen in John's vision as the Lamb? It means that at the center of heaven, the center of the glory of heaven, the central purpose of worship and the central means and meat of worship in heaven, the meaning of heaven, is that Jesus came to die for sinners as a Lamb slain for sacrifice. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a lamb slain for our sins. So we forever in heaven will look to the throne and see beside the throne the lamb. To remember the gospel that Christ came to die for our sins and raise again. Trust in Christ on earth or there is no heaven Trusting Christ on the earth is the only way to inherit heaven. That's the meaning of heaven. Rejoicing, remembering, being thankful that our sins are forgiven and we are with God again. Number two, application. God is not holding out on you. Consider, compare, and stop complaining. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is really what the whole book of Revelation is doing. Consider and compare. You are going to be tempted to take the mark of the beast, to worship comfort, to worship money and success. You're going to be tempted to value your own life more than you value God. Consider. Compare. If you're going to suffer even the slightest headache or the scorn or ridicule or sorrow for believing and following Jesus Christ, you're going to have to consider the sufferings and compare them with the glory that is to be revealed later. One of the reasons we are so grumpy and so complaining is that we have come to believe what we know as the prosperity gospel. That God is here to give you your best life. That God is here to give you a new job and a new car. Give you things. Make sure that you don't ever have any problems and suffer in any way on earth. that, That you see all that stuff they have, God's gonna make sure that you have some of that too. But if you are in Christ, your best life is not now. It is yet to come. If you're not trusting in Christ Your best life is now, and that's the problem. What is the Holy Spirit ministering to us? It says in Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To have the Holy Spirit ministering in you, bringing about faith in you, convicting you of sin is a daily reminder of a future inheritance in heaven. Number three, endure. Endure. Do not think that your job is to come change the world into heaven now. Our job is to endure the world until God makes it new and takes us to be to heaven, to be with him in heaven. I was reading about the Puritans this week. When they moved from England over the course of several decades, even a century, they actually believed they were moving to heaven they believe they were moving to a new country where they would establish the new Jerusalem, which we read today in Revelation 21. That they would begin a new holy place, un, unbound by kings, unbound by the Pope, who is the Antichrist. We will move to America. We will establish a new city. It will be the new Jerusalem. It will be the, the shining light of a city on a hill to all the nations. Because we are going to go there and live in godliness. We're going to go there and be free to worship Jesus Christ. We're going to usher in the millennium. It was believed the millennium was going to begin in the early 1600s in America. But just a generation after the first few Pur- Puritans begin to arrive, they begin to figure out that they brought with them lying, cheating, stealing, Same kind of people that were in England all along. Cotton Mather wrote just a few decades into Puritan American experience how deeply disappointed he was. Much more may we, he says, the children of such fathers, the first generation of Puritans in America, may we lament our gradual degeneracy from that life and power of godliness that was in them, ironically, in England. And the man provoking evils that are amongst us, which have moved our God to witness against us. And so he urged his congregation to make more converts, work harder, pursue holiness so that Christ would come. Just one generation. Heaven is not here. Heaven is to come. The new earth, the new heaven is to come. Our dwelling with God in perfection in the garden again is to come, but it is not here. We must between now and then endure. Satan is still tempting, attacking, prowling, whispering lies. The earth is a desert and a tempest. Heaven is yet to come. But seeing it there helps us endure here. Number four, give yourself and your life to others. Give yourself and your life to others. There is not much more fundamental question for us to ask about ourselves, how we will live. Will we live for ourselves or we will, will we live ourselves for others? Hebrews chapter 10 connects this to heaven. Verse 32 to 34, Paul says, uh, let's just say it's Paul. Recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. And this church had been very faithful to Jesus despite persecution. Paul says, Hebrews ten thirty four: "...for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession." And an abiding one. How can you be generous? How can you spend the next 60 years regularly tithing to your church? What would make you give a dollar above your regular tithe to missions and the gospel going around the world? What would make you give a dime or a meal to the poor? What about helping your neighbor? How could we possibly begin to follow Jesus' command when he said, if someone takes your shirt, give them your coat too? Faith that in Christ you have a better possession and an abiding one. Faith that you have a better possession, a better inheritance in heaven in Christ is the cure to greed. Number five, love the church. Love the church. Paul says, Colossians chapter one, verse three to five, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Calvin said it this way, meditation upon the heavenly life stirs up our affections both to the the worship of God and to exercises of love. Maybe consider why is your love for the church low? Maybe because your thoughts of heaven are few. Think about heaven and you will again have the strength to reach out to someone and have them over for dinner. Think of heaven and all that you have there and all that is in Christ, all that is in God and you will again have the strength to pray for someone else. You'll again have the strength to be generous with material possessions to anyone in need. You can love the church because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Trust Christ on the earth. It's the only way to inherit heaven. Remember, God is not holding out on you. Consider, compare, and stop complaining. Endure. Give yourself and your life to others. Love the church. Why? Because of what awaits in heaven for those who are in Christ. We pick up in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Last week we saw that God is bringing the place, this new city, from God himself down to earth, so that the address of heaven and earth are one place God dwells with man together. No more portals, no more copies, no more temples, no more tabernacles. God's going to be here himself, and this is going to be the place where he dwells. Look at what the fruit will be. We're just going to go through the passage. First, we see glorious bliss. Everything is glorious in heaven because God is there. The glorious bliss in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There's a pretty good universal understanding in our world, whether you are an atheist or whether you believe in God. We all believe things are wrong. You can say that you are an existentialist or a relativist or a naturalist or some version. But we all believe there's a right and wrong deep down. And the way it comes out is when we hear the idea of no more no more, no more crying, no more tears, no more, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. We love it. We want to imagine it. We even try to sing about it in atheistic songs. We want to have it. That's the point of John Legend. Imagine there's no heaven. The Bible says, no, imagine that there is Heaven. We can only endure death, mourning, crying, pain, now, tears, now, because there are going to be no more in heaven. Consider that picture of heaven that he gives us. He, this is personal. It's not just going to be a transfer of times and places and existence. It's personal. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you have a picture in your mind of what that looks like? Isn't that what parents do? You ever seen a parent take a child who scraped their knee, got bullied at school? They come to their mom, they come to their dad, tears running down their face. And you see a mother, you've done this as a father. You put your hands around your kids' faces and you rub the tears off of their faces with your thumbs. Or you see someone in the hospital bed afraid for what comes next in surgery. Maybe there's no plan to leave the hospital this time. And you see the spouse get close and wipe away tears. This is one of the first pictures of when heaven gets to earth what it's going to be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Lamb stands at the throne of God, having forgiven sin, having resurrected to new life and sin and all its effects. They will pass away. The glorious final end in chapter 21, verse 5 through 8. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To those who are thirsty, those who have been born again and thirst for righteousness, thirst for life, will find it in Christ. That is what it means to conquer, as he says in verse 7. Not that you're going to get your own sword out and go after Satan, but that through Christ you conquer. He says there in verse 8, but those Cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And does this mean that if you've done bad things that you will not go to heaven? That's not what it's saying. Does this mean that if you're a Christian and you have sinned as a Christian that you can't go to heaven? No. Just like conquering doesn't mean that you get your sword and you charge the hill against your enemies, conquering means you overcome evil forces through the world, you overcome the enemies of God, you overcome death itself through faith in Jesus Christ by your unity to Him. In the context of Revelation, it means that those who forsake Jesus by giving in to the worship of the beast By giving into the world systems of love and pleasures and worship and loving your life and your stuff and the world more than Christ, more than God Himself, there will be a final separation of people in heaven. C.S. Lewis refers to it as the great divorce. In a book by that title, he has multiple characters having conversations those who are of heaven, those who are of hell. These are fictitious conversations meant to describe the disconnect between heaven and hell, both now and forever. In the preface, C.S. Lewis says, we are not living in a world where all roads are a radii of a circle. In other words, all roads are on the same circle, and every time we go around, we get a little bit closer, we're all coming to the same center, He says, no, we live in a world where all roads gradually don't come together. Rather, a world where every few miles, the road forks into two. And then a few miles again. And decisions must be made at every fork in the road. It is a great divorce. Heaven and hell. Our lives are going somewhere. History is going toward a great division of people. God is himself the beginning and the end. He began the world. He will renew the world And his renewal will be a final divorce of all that is good from all that is wicked and evil and opposed to him. God is the beginning. He is the end. It means your faith in Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, is itself the great determination between heaven and hell. Not you, not your work, not how nice you are, not how good you were this week, not if you were nice someone, if you paid it forward at Starbucks. It doesn't matter unless you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the great divorce between heaven and hell in the end is a separation of peoples. And it is God who is the beginning, He is the end, which makes this great divorce, as it were, final. One character in the great divorce is an academic, postmodern theologian. He has exceeded the theological confines of the gospel, and he's always learning, always expanding to the point that he no longer believes in Christ. In one conversation, he says, For me, there's no such thing as final answer. To travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. But you must admit yourself that there is something stifling about the idea of finality. But see how heaven is the opposite. Heaven means evil is no longer stifling. Sin no longer stifles joy. Worldly, earthly, empty pleasures like drunkenness and sexual immorality and empty, wicked entertainment no longer get used as the cheap replacements for God that they are. Peace and holiness cannot be disturbed there. It is the just due worship of God and His holiness that what is holy and what is sinful is forever separated. And that means those who are made holy in Christ and those who are not. Next we see the glorious city of heaven. Verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me The holy city coming down out of heaven of God, from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, had a great high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, and the north three gates, and the south three gates, and the west three gates, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And there's a lot here, as there has been in the book of Revelation, especially in this chapter, as Tim Keller would put it in Revelation 21, every phrase is pregnant. Every single phrase could pick up the story of the whole Bible and tie it up in a bow and connect it. So there's no way we can get through all of the things, but something I would have us consider that this passage is helping us see is that the Bible and revelation are closed. And the thing that we are waiting on next itself is heaven. Why does it matter that the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles are inscribed on the gates and the foundations of heaven? For one, it tells us that God's revelation is complete. It's complete, it's finished. We have what God is going to say Recently in our church we voted to join the Pillar Network and about two months ago we presented this idea to the church in a members meeting on Sunday evening and our elders decided not to print out the four thousand pages of documents of uh, a doctrine that went along with it and we just communicated to our church, hey, everything that's in the Danvers and the Nashville and the Chicago statement, these dated statements of faith, everything that's in there, we already believe. It's in our statement of faith, too. It's just kind of expressed in greater detail. And to my uh, uh, immediate slight frustration, but my greater long-term joy, our church said, actually, we'd like to read those before we go voting on things. So, okay, here we go. So we had time to read those. Several got copies of them and read them. Our next, I did not ask if I could share this, but I feel that I can because I love this woman dearly. She showed up at one of our our next meeting and she said, I have a question about the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And I thought, man, I hope I have an answer (laughs) for this question. (laughs) This is the sentence that she had a question about. Is God going to say anything else about the progression of his work between now and heaven? It's a great question. And it came from this sentence in the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. It actually came from the exposition on the statement. Not even just the statement. Someone was reading the paragraphs after the statement. I found this wonderfully encouraging. The sentence is this. The New Testament canon is now closed inasmuch as no new apostolic witness to the historical Christ can now be born. You might think hear that and think, I don't even know what that means, much less to be concerned about it. The New Testament canon, that's the whole Bible, the New Testament Bible, is likewise now closed in as much as no new apostolic witness to the historical Christ can now be born. Next sentence, no new revelation. No, no, nothing new from God, no new revelation as distinct from spirit-given understanding of existing revelation will be given until Christ comes again. Now, in other words, the Bible is closed. You don't get to add to it. I don't get to add to it. We are not waiting for another round of prophets to come give us some new news. We're not waiting for someone to come give us the date that Jesus is coming back. We're not waiting for someone to date the millennium or tell us what, what nation is going from one place to another so that we know Revelation's be. We're not waiting for that. We have the full testimony of God about the person Jesus Christ in the Old and the New Testament. How do we know? One way that we know is that heaven's memorials have already been designed. I love Washington, D.C. When you go to Washington, D.C., it's just memorial after memorial after memorial. My kids love following me around Washington, D.C. That's not true, that was a joke. In D.C., you can just keep adding memorials, statues, as long as there are presidents and wars and movements. We'll be making new statues. But not heaven. It's got 24 memorials at 12 gates, and 12 foundations under the wall. And all the memorials are ultimately prophetic witnesses of Jesus Christ. The 12 tribes of Israel to them was given testimony that Christ was coming to die on the cross for sin. The 12 apostles, to them was given the testimony that Christ had come to die on the cross for sin, that He had come. In heaven, we will forever remember that the testimony of Jesus on Earth came through Israel and through the uh, prophets, through the pro- uh, prophets. We'll look at the gates. And we'll talk to each other. Oh, remember when Moses and the Psalms and the prophets told us that Jesus was coming and we were waiting and waiting and waiting? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And we'll look at the foundations and we'll see the names of the apostles and you say, But don't you remember when he came? And remember that he rose and that he came back? Don't you remember the testimony of the apostles? And everything will be a reminder that Christ, who was foretold, came and died on the cross to save us from the wrath of God by dying for sin, that he resurrected like the apostles said that he did, and that he came back like the apostles said he was going to come back. And it's going to be memorialized all over the city walls and the foundations in heaven. This is not unlike what God commanded Israel to do in Deuteronomy 6, about his word. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The whole city covered in the word of God. So there's not more God has to say. The testimony of Jesus is already designed for decoration in heaven. Jesus dying on the cross for sinners and raising from the grave to start the new creation, to start the new heaven. That's the whole point of the whole Bible. Of Israel and the apostles. There's nothing more high, nothing more glorious, nothing more meaningful, nothing more central in heaven, nothing more central to earth than the Son of the living God coming to the earth according to Israel and witnessed by the prophets to save mankind from sin so that we can dwell with God again in heaven. That's the memorial that's memorialized everywhere. Everywhere. That's what it means for Israel's names and the apostles to be included. It's pointing towards Christ and God's work in his people toward Christ. To say that God has more to add, that there are a new word, a new direction, there's more books that we're waiting for, would be like walking into God's house and saying he really should redesign all of this. You really should redecorate. You really could use one more foundation looks a little in disrepair. It would be telling John, it would be telling us, heaven's better than what it means in Jesus Christ. There's something else. But there is nothing better than the revelation of Jesus Christ for sinners, memorialized forever in glorious praise with the Lamb being at the throne. Glorious Presence next. Chapter 21 verses 15 through 17. What is so great about these measurements and jewels? Chapter 21 verse 15 to 17. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Just a thought, if humans and angels can get to use the same measurement, maybe the West and Britain could maybe work out a deal where where we could just... What's the point about the measurement? If... If it were to be translated to miles and distance on land surface area, that would be a square where the corners are Austin, Miami, New York, and Minneapolis, roughly. And you might think that's really, really big. You might think that's kind of small, actually. It would be hundreds of times bigger than the nation of Israel's land. It would expand the whole space of the Roman empire at the time and beyond but the main point is actually not the size those measurements are for consideration for comparison i think that number 12000 being important 144 cubits being measure uh, multiplication of 12 but they have israel the people of god written all over them everything is multiples of 12 the meaning is actually in In this, its length is the same as its width, and its length and width and height are equal. Why does that matter? Have we seen a space in the world, a building, a structure in the world where its length and width and height are equal? When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, it says that the Holy of Holies was the same length, width, and height. That place where God dwelled among the people, but really only with one person once a year through the ritual of blood presented on behalf of sinners, that which is now open through Jesus Christ, that living curtain... Now, the Holy of Holies is where all who trust in Christ dwell. The inheritance that we obtained in Christ is to forever dwell in the Holy of Holies. That is with God. The whole city, the whole place where heaven is, is now the Holy of Holies. Everything is clean, everything is out. No more mourning. No more death, no more sin, no more curse. All that's out, it's cleansed like a ritual practice preparing the Holy of Holies for God to come dwell there in the temple. When God was dwelling in the tabernacle and in the temple, there would be one man. Sometimes you could go into God's presence. But here all of man dwells in that cube and that Holy of Holies forever forever. That's the meaning of the jewels too themselves. What's the point of all the jewels in verses eighteen through twenty-one? Are we just supposed that that God went shopping? That God, you know, heard he saw the commercial. Every kiss begins with K. We need to go decorate heaven, and God just wants to make it look nice and pretty and shiny. Is that the extent of the meaning that it's really valuable? I don't think so consider the description of the temple and the instructions for how the priests were to adorn themselves when they would go into the holy of holies we don't have time to go through every implication of the temple in this passage but it's dripping with temple language in exodus chapter 28 verse 15 through 20 god is giving moses the instruction for the priest clothing to go into the temple, and in worship. See if this sounds familiar. Exodus 28, verse 15 through 20. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth, You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be in the first row. In the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. The dwelling place of God is now with man. All the adornments of the temple were always just a copy of when God will dwell with man forever. In the new heavens and new earth. That one time a year when priests would put on that ephod, it was covered in jewels, and he entered into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lamb for sin. That was a picture, that was a copy of when all those who trust in Christ as the Lamb will go in themselves and be with God forever. Even the gold streets, what's the point? What's the point of the gold streets? It is not that we're just going to be really wealthy. That's not the point. Solomon's temple, the holy of holies, was overlaid with 600 talents. That's 45 someone can check the math for me. 45,000 pounds of gold. To say you're walking on the streets of gold is to say you're walking in the temple. Even the nails in the temple, Second Chronicles 3, 1, through 10, even the nails were gold. Solomon spent nearly one and a half billion dollars worth of gold in today's economy just in the Holy of Holies. That's not counting the gold in the Ark, the covenant itself, not the gold in the lampstands, not the gold in the bowls, not the gold in the forks, not the gold in the tables, not the gold in cherubim, which were Huge. Why did Solomon build the temple like that? First Chronicles 28, 19, Solomon, all this, he, David, made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be done according to plan. It was a copy of heaven. It was gold and it was expensive and it was rich and it was from all over the world and it was unmatchable. And it was it was a copy. Heaven is not a copy of the temple. Don't get that backwards. The plan was always God with his people in heaven. The temple on earth was like that 20-second movie trailer for what it's going to be like. The measurements, the jewels, the gold, all they depict has to do with the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the imaginative wonder that is in heaven itself. Now that all who are in Christ will live forever inside the holy of holies with God. And then there is the glorious light and the holiness of God. Chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, This, I think, is the point. This is uncreated light. That light which God created at the very beginning of Genesis, that that thing which really is the foundation of our ability to be alive in our solar system. That first light spoken into creation, that light was created It was made. It it didn't always exist. God said, let there be light. And then everything that we know as light naturally became light. It's created light. But in heaven, light is going to be so different. I mean, light itself is going to be part of the glory of God the light that we enjoy you ever you ever go into movie theater or or for me it, it's my parents house where the temperature is like you're not in texas like you're you're in the north pole or you know some mongolia some some it's cold and then you walk outside and the sun Hits your face and your arms. And in Texas, at least, for your, you get like 60 seconds of pure joy before you go back inside. All, all of this, the light that we enjoy, the light, when we look around, we can see trees and glory and sky. We can see ourselves and each other. It's, th- those things are created. But God himself His glory will be our light. We're going to be on the side, on the realm where there are no pesky creation copies in the way. I mean, this is difficult to imagine. But I agree with Jonathan Edwards the way Revelation uses like so often. John is inviting us and forcing us to use our imagination. No more darkness. The night is gone. I don't know about you, but I am more and more wary of night. Sleep itself can be exhausting. Darkness. Just ask a police officer what the cities of the earth are like at night. In the deep hours of darkness. All that. Will be gone. Trust Christ on earth. He's the only way to heaven. God is not holding out on you. Consider. Compare. Stop complaining. Endure. Give yourself and your life to others. Love the church. Jonathan Edwards said it this way to close, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much the chance to come and sit under the revealed word of Israel, of the apostles, of your spirit. Pray, Father, that you would help us have eyes to see, ears to hear today. We would take this wonderful word of heaven to heart Father, would you let it affect us? Would you let us rest from all of our striving, from all of our idolatry? Help us let go of this world today, now, by trusting Christ for our sins and trusting Christ for our security. That if we are in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Help us love one another well. Help us be generous. Help us be forgiving as you have forgiven. Help us love the church. Forgive one another. Be gracious and kind in the church. Remembering the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for opportunity to gather here, be encouraged by your word. We love you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.